And so they join the stream of family life in the suburbs, soon to become part of its familiar sights, soon to absorb its familiar sounds. Anybody home? 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 Anybody? Okay, so that might be the version of suburbia that we see in media, you know, the mad men vision of American suburbia. But it seems that there might be a more complex story behind what the suburbs really are and where physical activity can fit into that space. In this episode of Somatic, we explore that question and try to tell that story. Okay, let's go. In order to really understand suburbs, we first wanted to dig into their past. In order to do so, I talked with Dr. Andrew Weiss, Professor and Chair of the Department of History at San Diego State University, former Director of the Urban History Association, and author of the award-winning 2004 book, Places Their Own, African-American Suburbanization in the 20th Century. I'm Andy Weiss, and I'm a urban cultural social and political historian. I have written about African-American suburbanization in the 20th century United States, uh, and in particular, the relationships between race and class and space, um, the kinds of advantages and disadvantages that are connected to the places where people are, uh, where they live, where they are not, uh, and are not allowed to be. Uh, and I write more broadly about um, suburbia in the United States and in a North American and in a, in a global context. First up, I asked Dr. Weiss to start by giving us an overview of the history of the suburbs. He did so by breaking it down into three main phases. Yeah, so uh, American suburbs are a lot older than most people conceive. I think most people, when they think about suburbs or you know, the term suburbia, they're thinking about uh, post-World War II America. They're thinking about Leave it to Beaver and uh, men in gray flannel suits and um, Doris Day and June Cleaver in a, in a kitchen, uh, you know, that, that social and cultural uh, construction of, of the, you know, the post-war period. Um, 
but American suburbia goes back uh, certainly to the uh, to the nineteenth century, um, to the early nineteenth century, uh, really to the origins of industrialism. Um, as American cities, like other world cities, begin to expand, um, people begin to to move to the edges of those places uh, and begin to develop conceptions about um, about what location or residence or you know life or work in those places means. And so, and I think there's an early there, there's an early period of, uh, of of American suburbanization, which you know roots uh, all all the way back to the early 19th century, um, um, the development of of borderlands, uh, the development of very early railroad uh, and pedestrian commuters from cities like Boston or New York or Philadelphia, um, people who are are choosing to move out beyond the built up sections of town. That migration outward includes both um, uh, professional and upwardly mobile people who begin to perceive the, uh, the outskirts of town, the connections to nature and uh, rural or pastoral landscapes as being healthful, uh, salubrious, uh, good for children, uh, good for peace of mind. Um, the thing to recognize is that while we, you know, I think we see in that period, we see a growing number of, um, of, of people creating fashionable, um, ideal kinds of rural landscapes, large houses, single family, um, um, compounds and, and, and residences that have a pastoral idea. There's also lots and lots of working people who are moving into this, um, into this landscape, which remains really heterogeneous, uh, through, you know, through the early part of the 20th century so that. Um, you know, expensive residences in places like Brookline or Pasadena or Englewood uh, or Montclair, New Jersey or um, Evanston, Illinois, or many other um, sort of high class residential suburbs abut very closely with working class communities of people who work in suburban uh, factories, which grow up along suburban um, belt railway lines. Uh, or also communities of working class people who work in service to those high class um, residential suburbanites. So early suburbia through the early part of the through the late 19th century and through the early part of the 20th century remains heterogeneous uh, in its landscapes. It's heterogeneous in its social classes and composition. Um, and uh, is a very diverse, uh, you know, is a very diverse set of uh, you know, visual, social, cultural, and political places. Okay, so there's a lot more going on there in the early history of the suburbs. But as we move into the middle of the 20th century, and especially into that post-World War II moment, what do the suburbs really turn into? Um, the second critical period, really, in, in suburban Development in the U.S. comes with um, interventions in the housing market that start during the, the New Deal period in the 1930s, decisions by the federal government to craft policy to support homeownership uh, and to make homeownership really a national uh, economic social policy. Um, it creates several institutions, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh, the Federal Housing Administration, uh, and then will be added to that, you know, institutions um, with World War II, like the Veterans Administration. 
um, uh, and Federal National Mortgage Association, you know, Fannie Mae, uh, a set of institutions which will make it easier for people, ordinary people, to purchase home their own, but to do it um, in a way that is much more regulated, much more controlled, much more restrictive and standardized than in this heterogeneous period that comes before. And in the post-war period, in the, early, in the late 1940s and early 50s, we get a, a, a period of mass suburbanization uh, that's driven by um, these desires of, uh, of American families that is facilitated by the activities of private developers who are standardizing and developing mass production techniques in housing and which is subsidized by the federal government, uh, which makes it possible for people to borrow money um, at a uh, low rate to purchase homes uh, in ways that they never could have before. And so you get a period of relatively standardized, uh, racially and socially um, increasingly homogenized suburban, uh, suburban um, sprawl in the immediate post-war period. Um, and while I think standardization, homogenization, similarity, um, uh, and, and conformity are emblems of that period, it's important to recognize um, that there is also uh, an enforced racial uh, and social segregation policy, which is embedded in this in this process. Those suburbanites in the post-war period uh, are overwhelmingly white. Those mass-produced suburbs are uh, exclusively marketed towards and designed for uh, and um, and restricted to uh, people uh, who can claim to be white. Uh, at the same time, um, African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, other people of color find it exceedingly difficult to move into these uh, same places that their that their white counterparts are are moving um, they do find ways to penetrate into this landscape but um, in much of the united states they're unable to move into those brand new suburban subdivisions that are being crafted for the new expanding white middle class uh, they are able to move into uh, adjacent sections close to those older heterogeneous and working class spaces of the pre-war period. Um, and in some cases, they're able then to expand from those beachheads um, into adjoining uh, racial and integrated neighborhoods. And lastly, Dr. Weiss describes the final phase in suburban development that brings us up to the contemporary moment. After the 1970s, at this, you know, just as, just as our post-war economic and social history faces a, a, a moment of, of watershed in the 1970s politically and, and economically. Um, the same is true of, of suburbia. After 1970, um, there is a proliferation and an expansion of American suburbia. The scale of home building, the scale of finance uh, that supports that home building explodes. And we have a new, um, you might even say grotesquely, uh, expansive process of corporate suburbanization, which uh, explodes across landscapes after after 1970, homogenizing uh, at an even greater scale. You know the landscape of American suburbia, the physical landscapes of American suburbia, um, than even was true after World War II. Um, but at the same time that that's happening, the 
social landscape of suburbia begins to become much more diversified. Um, the impact of civil rights legislation, Fair Housing Act, um, um, Supreme Court decisions, which um, which make illegal discrimination in housing, begin to open up the possibility for more people and different people to move to the suburbs to transcend some of those racial boundaries and barriers that had existed before. There is a certain amount of integration which begins to take place in post-1970 suburbia, but a lot of what happens is a kind of segregated diversity uh, in which more and more uh, Americans are able to move into suburban uh, communities, um, but they are often um, in separate and, and relatively uh, unhomogeneous uh, locations within those, within those suburban, suburban places. With that overview in place, we asked Dr. Weiss to talk more about how physical activity fits into the space of suburbia. Is it really all about suburban sprawl and physical inactivity, or is there more going on there? It's, it's very clear in, in, in work that, that I've been doing both academically and as a vocation recently uh, related to community planning and open space preservation in uh, in San Diego, the city where I live, is just how advantaged some communities are in terms of their uh, existing open space and leisure and recreational amenities and how disadvantaged some other places are. In 2012, a few years ago, the city of San Diego uh, undertook an effort um, under pressure from a number of um, environmental organizations to take stock of the city-owned open space canyons that existed in the city and to try to give those city-owned canyon spaces greater permanent protection as open space uh, and environmental space and recreational space going into the future. They organized it around all the different community um, uh, areas in the, in the city, and the city is divided into 42 community um, community areas, each of which has a, a community planning board. And these environmental organizations went to each of these um, community areas and then prepared material to explain to local residents, you know, how much how many acres of open space and recreational and environmental space was in their community area? Where were these places to try to increase awareness and uh, connection to those places and to get the local communities to advocate with their city representatives to protect that uh, open space going forward. And the community where I live, um, and, you know, sort of 1960s and 70s area uh, or region, era portion of the, of the city, uh, place that's inside the city but was, you know, subdivided and, and master planned as a suburban community in the 1960s connected to um, the University of California, which is nearby. There was about 300 and some acres of, of city-owned open space that was on the table for protection. And we've been battling, we battled for a lot of that then, and we've been battling for, for a significant portion of it since then. Many other communities in the in the city, working class uh, communities with large numbers of um, recent immigrants um, from Mexico, for example, or, or um, diverse communities with large numbers of refugees from East Africa, uh, refugee older generations of refugees from Southeast 
had three acres of uh, city-owned open open space canyons uh, that they were that they were dealing with. Uh, the quality and of that of that uh, of that habitat or those or those space areas was uh, severely degraded. Um, you know, you had open space areas that 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 were former creek bed that were channelized with concrete uh, concrete creek channels filled with shopping carts and trash um, encampments of of, uh, of unhoused people. Uh, places where residents of the community were highly suspicious of and frightened of um, of visiting those spaces, spaces that were perceived as dangerous, uh, as unhealthy, um, and, and as a threat to to the community. Uh, not in any way as a as a resource, uh, you know, in, uh, as a resource going forward for quality of life, um, for recreation. Certainly not as as places for kids to play. And you know, I think that 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 is a that reflects a stark history of the way that advantages in in, in recreation uh, and environmental spaces get arrayed uh, in uh, you know in a city, and that's a that's a long and, and deep history. But it also means that you know residents in a community like mine um, can uh, have or, or have been uh, um, have been educated to believe that they have that, that that their open space is an advantage to them right that it's a place that they can visit that it's a place where they have experiences where children can visit and experience nature where uh, adults and others can walk in the morning on a bird walk and, and you know and, and watch um, you know migrating migrating species of birds where they can um, uh, explore and, uh, and investigate and uh, encounter uh, elements of the natural world that surprise them uh, that push them out of their comfort zone uh, and make them curious to experience more places that they're willing politically to fight for. The contrast with you know some of the kinds of spaces that I that I just described in, in some of the other communities in the city that are so degraded and perceived as dangerous um, educate people in those communities to treat them and see them in a in a very different way. So obviously, there's a lot of complexity surrounding physical activity in suburban spaces. In order to explore some of that complexity, we headed over to the town of Lexington here in the Boston suburbs, a few towns over from where I live, um, and sat down with some members of the community who have been really significant um, in, in developing physical act the use of space for physical activity in that community. Um, it really is a question of what have these suburban communities been um, and how has that created spaces to, that can then be used to help shape what physical activity will be in the future. We really dug into specifically uh, how the town of Lexington and the people that live there have sought to bring together some of those interstitial spaces left over by suburban development and are looking to protect those as a public resource in the face of ongoing suburban development that's particularly intense here in, in the Boston suburbs today.
Uh, I'm Keith Omart. Uh, I'm chair of the town's Greenways Corridor Committee. Um, I was part of the group that founded the committee when we went to the Board of Selectmen for um, their approval to uh, have a formal town committee appointed as opposed to just an ad hoc bunch of volunteers. I'm Peggy Enders. I'm on the Greenways Quarter Committee, but I also chair the Bicycle Advisory Committee, which is also a selectman-appointed group of volunteers. There was an earlier generation of the stewards who were just simply, they would walk the trails in the town's conservation land, and that was it. And then the Bicycle Advisory Committee came along and sort of recruited. Right. Well, they became more ambitious about boardwalks, about getting money for trail maintenance. And, and right? safe routes to schools. And I think that was the school, first right. few boardwalks to link schools through adjoining pieces of conservation right. land into the neighborhood so kids could walk as opposed to having to be driven. Well, but there was a real recognition that the town had set aside and continues to set aside these parcels as assets for the community. And if they were going to be used in a way that would minimize damage to those assets in terms of trails that would be seasonally wet and then cause people to walk further and further around the margins of the trails, the trails would widen, that was where the boardwalk building process really took off along with the safe routes to schools aspect right. of it. Right. Um, and then an outgrowth of that was a realization uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, several of us of that collective group looked at the patchwork nature that the town had created. Um, we're up to 27 different distinct parcels which are simply conservation land that is uh, woodland, meadows, wetland, and, and that's separate from the town's parks and the school's recreation fields, that this was an area, a, a series of areas all over town that people would go into one by one and then leave. And the notion that you could walk from area to area in a larger loop really hadn't been explored. And, and that's where the Greenways Quarter Committee was established to create those links. Other aspect of it, which was part of our thinking from the beginning, and it, it, it's being proven, is to open people's eyes, including mostly people who live in town, that there is much more than just their own particular neighborhood conservation area. The town, whether it, I mean, I, it was partly planning, but partly luck, I think, the town's conservation properties are scattered pretty evenly throughout the town so that every neighborhood has at least one or more of their quote-unquote own conservation area. But the notion that there are these 
this, this array of additional areas, the fact that we now have marked routes that show you how to get from one to the other, I can't tell you the number of people who've come up to us and said, I've lived in this town for 25 years. I had no idea that X property was right over here or whatever. Clearly, Lexington has been investing in this resource for their community for a long time. But Keith really went into some more detail for us and described how they designed each and every route to really bring together the spaces of the community and allow people to move around um, throughout the whole of Lexington and access these different spaces. The route we're working on now, we, 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 we try to do them in loops so that it gives each one its own distinct characteristic that you can have a beginning point and an end point return to where you left your car or you know, bicycle or whatever. Um, and so we've, we're up to H, which is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. So we're up to about eight different loops at this point. And they're interconnected in parts. They don't all connect with, you know, but the, the bikeway, the Minuteman bikeway going through the center of town is the spine that we tend to work off of in a lot of these cases. But the, the route we're doing now, Route H, covers a very interesting mix of everything we've been talking about because it includes a school property, it, 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 it uses a piece of trail on the back side of that school property which is totally wooded and the school property in terms of maintenance there's nothing for them to do there but there are informal trails through that property that the neighborhood have established but nobody takes care of them. It connects off the back of the school property to a trail easement which was granted to the town when a cul-de-sac was created off of an adjoining street with half a dozen uh, condo units on it. So that was already in place but not being used. Um, it goes through that development on the trail easement, exits out onto a street, follows a couple of streets, goes into a town conservation property, exits that, follows another couple of streets, and then enters a new trail that was established on one of the commercial properties in town that had had a former trail that had been an Eagle Scout project probably 20 years ago mm -hmm. and fallen into total disuse. Um, and so that trail um, then establishes about a half mile worth of connection. Another crosses another couple of streets, enters another conservation property, and loops back to the school where it started. So it's, it's, it, it incorporates just about all the different possibilities that you might encounter in a community um, in terms of, okay, these are all these little neighborhood connections. Now how do we string them together? Mm, it's a really neat. That, I like H. H is really nice. The work that's been done to create this network of physical activity spaces in Lexington has been considerable. But the support isn't always forthcoming, and in fact in the region Lexington is fairly unique. So Peggy talks more at length about what it really takes to get this sort of a resource developed in your community, and how other similar suburbs can look to this as a model for building similar spaces in their own, in their own communities. When the person at the top has a vision, anything is possible. I mean, I, I believe that, that if, if um, the mayor of Newton, for example, says, I'm going to have 16 miles of bike lanes by date certain, 
and I I don't know whether they're making that how they're making pro progress on that but it, it it does make a difference to have leaders that that care about it care about something like that and ours are getting there ours are getting there so clearly Lexington as a community has chosen a direction to go in trying to preserve um, and further develop uh, public physical activity spaces in their community. Um, but I think when we consider this specific example alongside the broader context that Dr. Weiss provided, um, a question comes up of uh, whether this is really a model that's attainable by all communities. Um, and, and how can we develop models that create uh, access in a way that is equitable and inclusive going forward? Not every community has these spaces um, that have been preserved and built into the fabric of their suburb. Um, and others that do have access to green space don't necessarily have the economic or political capital to bring them into a cohesive and usable and accessible resource like we have had in Lexington. But I think what is important here is that any step communities can take to preserve public physical activity spaces like uh, what we've seen in Lexington is key. And Lexington can really provide us with some valuable takeaway uh, ideas to try and work towards a similar sort of resource um, for communities across the country. Yet despite this key role that these sorts of spaces can play for communities, especially in terms of equity, they often see pushback. And Peggy highlighted some of these issues. The, the, I, get, I get approached any number of times a year from groups they're trying to start a, a rail trail in their town and they're getting a pushback because of any number of, of concerns, m mostly about um, riffraff from some other town, but um, it doesn't... Once it, it, once it goes yeah, through, it becomes an asset. It becomes a real <laughs> asset, right. But, there, but there's, a, there's a pushback in Belmont still, I think, with their trail, the... Mm -hmm. The one they, the little one they want to run as a rail, with trail. Mm. Oh right, right, linking over to Waltham. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think what Peggy really highlights there is that every community that attempts to preserve these sorts of spaces um, are going to face some challenges, um, some pushback from lots of different places. Um, but it is important that every community strives to preserve uh, public resources like this. Um, and so to finish the episode, uh, I want to leave it with a last thought from Dr. Weiss, who really summed this up. Uh, and to say that different communities are going to have different opportunities, different challenges, uh, different resources, uh, different barriers. But I think it is incumbent on all of us to try and support those movements um, to preserve these suburban spaces as physical activity resources. I think that 
in terms of people's quality of, of life, those kind of open open places where there's developed parks or, or, or small pieces of urban nearby nature are, you know, are really critical to to uh, to quality of life, but also to equity. Private parks and the and the private playgrounds and the the private beaches, uh, you know, are you know, are a scourge of um, of a democratic society. it for another episode of somatic thanks for joining us um i want to say thank you again to dr andrew weiss um for contributing to this episode and also keith omer and piggy enders over at the town of lexington on their greenways committee and their bike committee there um obviously the information they share with the show is is really what was what made the show possible um <clears throat> i also want to thank uh, my co-founder and co-producer sam Clevenger for making all the music for the show this week. Um, once again, uh, his scoring just really brings it all together. Um, if you want to listen to the show, um, you can listen to it where you are right now, or you can listen to it on iTunes at our website, on Google Play, on Stitcher, or on SoundCloud. And you can share any one of those as well. Um, the more sharing, uh, the better for us, the more people get to listen to these sorts of conversations. Um, if you want more information on this topic, you can head over to our website at somaticpodcast.com where we have a blog post, blog post to go along with the show. Also, if you want to get in contact about anything that's come up in this episode, you can email us at somaticpodcast at gmail.com. All right, we'll see you on the next episode. This has been Somatic. Somatic.